0: Romans 14, verse 5, the first part of that verse. says, one, Paul says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. <laughs> You're in the wrong book. Okay. Why do Gentile... Christians do not keep what we would, what some would say, uh, the Sabbath, and we're going to attempt to answer that. First off, I want to point out that uh, the Sabbath, as instituted by God Himself in the Law, in the Mosaic Law, in the covenant that God had in the Old Covenant, that It was a covenant sign with Israel. It was a covenant sign with Israel. Exodus 31, verse 12 to 17 says, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you, throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Who's you? The Jews. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest Holy to the Lord, whoever does work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Actually, technically, when God created the heavens and the earth in the six days of creation, and it says on the seventh day, he rested in Genesis. He rested or ceased from all his work. God didn't take a nap. I don't want to point that part out. A bit. So in Genesis 2, verse 2 to 3, it says, On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and rested on the seventh day. From all the work that he had done, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This was not a covenant between God and any human being at that time, it was not a cut covenant in any blood at that point in Genesis. God had ceased from his work and from his work of creation and he hallowed it called it holy but there was no covenant cut at, at any time at that point covenant cutting with Adam did not happen until Adam sinned and God shed the first blood of an animal to cover his sin that was the first Adamic covenant that was out there uh, Exodus 16 22 to 26 is actually the first known Sabbath, uh, covenanted with Israel by God when He gave manna in the wilderness. Now they understood that the Ten Commandments had actually, you know, not been given yet. But God had the Sabbath there when He told them to gather manna. Remember, God, they were out in the wilderness. They had left their left slavery behind in Egypt, they were out in the wilderness. they were complaining and moaning and groaning about having no food. Why did you bring us out here, Moses, so that we could die to just to die in the wilderness? Oh, that we should go back to Egypt. And so the Sabbath was coveted them because he told them to gather manna six days a week and on the six days, Sixth day, they were to gather a double portion of manna because during those first six days when they gathered manna, if there was any left over the next day, it rotted or it melted away. They didn't have it. They had to gather it every day. But God on the sixth day told them to gather double because the next day, the seventh day was a Sabbath to the Lord. So that's when God made his first covenant command with Israel concerning the Sabbath. Because the Jews at that time, they they had no idea when it was. But now they did. God said, this is the day. Uh, Because the scriptures call special attention to gatherings on the first day, this is the second reason why Gentiles do not keep the Sabbath. One, Worship on what we now know as Sunday or the first day of the week, as as scripture puts it, was done first of all because that's when the resurrection took place. The resurrection took place on the first day of the week. John 20, verse 1 says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Boom, resurrection. Jesus had risen from the dead, and they knew, the disciples And them knew, that there was great importance to that. John 20, verse 19 says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, Again, that's what we call Sunday, came to to the tomb early, uh, excuse me, first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. So the first appearance physically of Christ took place on the first day of the week as well, did not occur on the Sabbath day, the Jewish Sabbath, the Mosaic Sabbath. In old Covenant Sabbath. Um, another one is Christ and the disciples followed that. John twenty twenty six said, eight days later, after, the, after this, after the Sabbath, eight days later, first day of the week, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be unto you. So once again, there it is again. We have the aspect that the Sabbath was on the first day of the week. Continuing on in Acts 2.1, it's Pentecost. Pentecost, 50 days later, Pentecost in Acts 2.1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place Pentecost came on the first day of the week. So even Pentecost fell upon the first day of the week. And so even again giving credence to the importance of the first day of the week where worship of the Lord began to take place. Uh, The giving of offerings, in 1 Corinthians sixteen one to 2, it says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, this is Paul, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so there will be no collecting when I come. Notice it says the collections, the offerings took place. When? First day of the week, as they were gathered together. And Paul says, I directed the churches to do so. In Revelation, we talked about before, this is where we originally started the subject that John was in. In Revelation 1.10, he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, first day of the week, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Once again, Jesus appeared to the Apostle John when? First day of the week. Why? John was heavy in the spirit, heavy into worship, heavy into praise, heavy into exalting God during that first day of the week. Well, some people try to counter, well, but what about Paul's visit to the synagogues on the Sabbath? In all the places that he went we realized that when Paul went out he, he went first as he always said salvation is of the Jew first and then the Gentile Paul always most of the time when he went to a city a particular city he started out going to the synagogues going to his people going to the Jewish people even though John was known as an apostle to the Gentiles Acts 13, verses 14 to 18 says, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went to the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, this that, that, who they were talking to is Paul and those that came with Paul, saying, you have if you have any word of encouragement for the people say it. So Paul stood up motioning with his hand and said men of Israel and you who fear God listen the god of the people israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of egypt and with uplifted arm he led them out of it and for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness anybody knowing understanding here what Paul's actually doing. Okay, let's let's take a look at the next one. Acts 13:44. The next Sabbath almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Same place. What's Paul doing? Setting him up. Yeah, he is. In Acts 17 2 says, and Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures. In other words, he debated them with scriptures. Paul wasn't in Paul's intent and his people that went with him, their intent was not going in merely for worship on the seventh on the Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week. He was in there to evangelize. Paul went in with a purpose of making an effort to preach to the Jews and any who would hear it about Jesus Christ and the new covenant that God had set up. That was his sole purpose for going there. If Paul went to the synagogue on the first day of the week, wouldn't be anybody in there except maybe the rabbi. Wouldn't be anybody there. So Paul took his evangelistic crusade team and went into the synagogues for the purpose of showing that the Old Covenant pointed the way to Christ and that they needed to accept Jesus. Now, it's interesting to note that some people would say, you know as they did say that Paul visited the synagogues, and he did, and some say, well, then he went back, yes, but well, let's remember along the way, if you read in Acts, those same places where he began to teach, they also began to persecute him they they threw him out of the city, they beat him within an inch of his life, they stoned him and everything else. Now taking that to reason, would Paul tell the people in that city after they came to the Lord for those that he successfully evangelized, "Oh, just because we all got beat up, thrown into prison, got stoned, and that didn't mean they were smoking pot together, got stoned, that Paul would send them back to the same place to have it all happen all over again?" That's another reason why the first day of the week began to change at that time because if they were to go into the synagogues, they were just going to get persecuted hugely over and over again, and that was not Paul's intent. It was brought up last week, and I'm going to quote the scripture from Matthew 5, 17. And says, Do not think... I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And there's a misunderstanding in those verses that are in there when they're saying, fulfill. So the law must be still in effect. We still must obey the law. We still should be doing the feast. We still should only be worshiping on the seventh day because Jesus says, I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. Well, the key word in that passage is the last word, fulfill. You need to have a proper understanding and all of us need to have a proper understanding as to what that word fulfill meant. In the Greek... It's the Greek word pleroo, P-L-E-R-O-O. And don't worry, you'll get a copy of the notes so you can, you'll see the Greek and everything else. It's the Greek word pleroo, which means, understand, he didn't come to destroy, but it says, the Greek means to finish, to make an end to, or to complete in full. Jesus did not come to destroy the law. To destroy it would mean the law was never any good. But in actuality, Jesus says, I came to fulfill it. I came so that that old covenant might be completed, that it might be ended, because there's a better covenant out there than what the old covenant is or was. And it's important that we have that understanding that Jesus Jesus, spoke the right words. It's today's language that makes us want to say, oh, that he meant something else. But the Greek word in there and even the Aramaic word plago means to complete, to make an end of, to bring it to end. And that's important. There's a transition taking place. In the Old Covenant, you had to do what the Old Covenant said in order to please God. You had to do the sacrifices. But the blood of animals, any animal, didn't make any difference whether it was a bull, an oxen, a sheep, a goat, or whatever. That blood... Was an animal's blood, no matter how pure that animal was, without spot or blemish, was insufficient to cover your sins totally. In fact, under the law, it says that the blood of these animals will cover sins done unintentionally, but those sins that are done intentionally. Even the blood of animals could not cover that. So you could take all the animals you wanted to to the temple every time you sinned, and that blood was insufficient. There was only one perfect blood ever to cleanse a man or person from sin. Excuse me. And that was the perfect blood of Christ. Only he had blood perfect enough that was acceptable to God to cover all our sins past, present, and future. And more importantly, that blood of his could only cleanse us from the sin. You ever notice that sometimes it talks about sins, our little sins, whether they're sexual sins or lying, gossiping, cheating, hating, whatever, murder, stealing, all of that. It talks about sins. But so often when it talks about what Jesus did, it mentions sin singular. And that's the sin of Adam. That's the original sin that was passed down to each and every single one of us. That sin could not be cleansed alone by the blood of an animal. Couldn't happen. Only the blood of Christ was pure enough to be presented to the Father after his resurrection. When he went to the Father and presented his blood, and God accepted that sacrifice, that perfect sacrifice because it came from God himself. So there was that sacrifice there and that we have to understand that Jesus made an end when he cried out from the cross. It is finished. It is finished meant the whole thing. It wasn't it's finished. My life down here is over. No. It meant the law was complete. He had fulfilled the law. He had fulfilled his purpose. He had fulfilled what God sent him to do. He fulfilled uh, his plan of salvation for every single human being that ever lived through his blood. So Jesus made an end to the older Mosaic Covenant And his blood, his death and resurrection at that time introduced the new covenant. The new covenant. When Jesus died, the veil of the temple was what? Ripped, torn in half. You realize that curtain was six to eight inches thick? I mean, you know, we have some material that even thin we can't rip to pieces. In human strength, well, we can cut some with scissors, but there ain't scissors big enough to cut a six to eight inch single piece of cloth that went in front of the Holy of Holies, that place where God came down at the Ark of the Covenant and met the priest there when he sprinkled blood on that. And in fact, in Jesus' day, they didn't even have the Ark of the Covenant. It was actually the sacrifices were almost moot at that point because there was no Ark of the Covenant. There was no place for God to come down and his presence to rest in the temple because he rested it on the Ark of the Covenant. That's where he appeared when the blood was sprinkled on the altar. That's when he came down and accepted that sacrifice. So, when that temple veil was rent in two, it signified the end of an old covenant where the presence of God and the sacrifice of animals was no longer in effect. The law had been done away with. Now, that's the stringent law. I want to say one thing. The moral law of God still exists because Paul points out all the way through in his letters what the moral law is. That hasn't changed. But much of certain punishments and certain things in the festivals and that, the feasts, the sacrifices of animals, and all of that was done away with. And there is no longer a veil or a curtain that separates the regular people from God. Now everyone has access to God personally. You are a royal priesthood. You have access To God, and your Holy of Holies is wherever you are, wherever you worship, wherever you meet God, whether it's in church, whether it's in your home, whether it's out on the street, whether it's in a hospital visitation, a nursing home, Walmart, Kroger, wherever you are, the Holy of Holies is there with you. God is there with you. You're no longer restricted. You know, people had to bring the animals to the priest and he had to go and make atonement for them. Now, Jesus made the atonement for everyone. There's no longer a separation between you and I and God. No longer are we kept back. That temple veil was rent. The law with all its punishments was done away with. I like the way the Phillips translations translates I Matthew It's really I like it this way. It says, you must not think that I have come to abolish the law or pro- the prophets. I have not come to abolish or destroy them, but to complete them. I've come to complete it. Jesus likewise said this of the Sabbath. He tried to teach the Jewish people when they got on his case because he healed a man on the Sabbath day. And he looked at the Pharisees because the Pharisees looked at the Sabbath as something so, I'll say they thought they were being holy. But they missed the point. Jesus said to, to them, he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Jews thought, oh, God made us so we could worship on that seventh day. God said, no, I created the seventh day. I rested for my work on the seventh day. You need at least one day rest from your labors. So I'm telling you, of course, today now we got days where people only work three, four days a week and they're off for three or four and that's okay by me. (laughs) But the idea that God was saying, six days shall you do your work and on the seventh you will rest. They made it something ritualistic rather than something that was wonderful, rather than something that was restful, rather than something that was easy. Because on that Sabbath day, there was so many laws that the Pharisees and them made from that one scripture that said, honor the Sabbath day and make it holy. You know, I, I've shared some of this before. If, you, if, if you're a man and your wife sewed something in your garment and you had left the needle in the garment and then the guy was walking around, he could be stoned because he was working, carrying that needle with him. If you had false teeth, You could be stoned because that was considered work. They decided what God really meant by the Sabbath day, and they missed it by a mile. And that's what Jesus was saying. You missed the whole purpose. God created the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath day. Uh, Paul further warns about any legalism stemming from the law versus the way the Gentiles are worshiping on the first day of the week. Uh, He said, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Yay, I can eat bacon. (laughs) I had a ham cheese sandwich tonight. (laughs) Yum. (laughs) I like that. In questions of food and drink, or with regard to a feast, or a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath, there were people back then Judaizers going around saying you have to worship on this day. We have them today, and we're going to talk about that more in Revelation as we get into it, uh, and especially when we get to the seven churches coming up. The next time we meet will be that's exactly where we're headed. But there were a lot of Judaizers out there that were saying, no, you've got to worship on this. You've got to do certain things. You've got to keep all the feasts. Now, don't get me wrong. If you want to observe one of the feasts, because the feasts do point to Jesus, there's no if ands, or buts about that. They either point to Jesus' first coming, or there's a couple that point about his second coming. The question is that Paul was dealing with here was those people who said you had to do it rather than if you want to participate, it's fine. As with the understanding that you know what you're participating in. It's okay to observe that if you want to partake of the feast, the feast of Passover, the feast of Pentecost, the feast of trumpets. You can do that. It's, it's fine to do that, but understand you're under no legalistic obligation to do so. If you do it, you're doing it because you desire to do it. It's something you want to do. And God will honor that rather than going, I've got to do this ritualistically. I've got to be there. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I have to keep this. I have to keep that. I have to watch what I do in the Sabbath. I have to watch what happens if there's a new moon out and I can't eat this on a certain day or I can't eat this at all. No. I think you know. we know God made that plain to Peter when he was up on top of the roof, <laughs> he had the vision of God sending down that bl- that blanket filled with all kinds of unclean food. And Paul, he said, God said, hey, Paul, I mean, not Paul, Peter, Peter, take and eat. He goes, no, Lord, I've done, I haven't ever touched any of these animals all my life because they're unclean. And God says, do not call unclean those things which I have declared to be clean. So God was now through the new covenant making even animal certain meats now clean rather than unclean. And uh, so we need to get off the legalistic aspect of it. You know, it says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Anything we do down here, including the law, was a shadow of something that is happening. We realize, and when we studied for uh, the gifts of the Spirit, when Paul talked about the fact, and people have taken this to the opposite extreme. It says, whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall be done away with. So he's talking about, oh, there's there's no more tongues after the original apostles. There's no more knowledge. That's not there. But they forget to read the rest of it. And it says, for we now look through a glass darkly, but then we shall know even as we are known. The concept of that is that when we get to heaven, we won't need knowledge. I mean, the knowledge that we gain from books, the knowledge that we gain from these kind of things. There won't be tongues because we'll all be speaking the same language together. We won't need the gift of healing because we are going to walk in perfect health. We're going to walk in divine health. There's no more death, no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more pain the gifts of the Spirit will be done away with when we see God face to face. All of that will be changed. And I can't wait. I cannot wait for that to happen. Because I think it's important that we have an understanding of what the new covenant is all about what we have with that new covenant and why it's so more important. Acts 15, 28 to 29 says, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you. This is, uh, I'll get preview into this. This is Paul going before the Jerusalem council, which at that time was made up of James, John, and Peter. And Paul went to explain his ministry, and he went to make complaints about Judaizers, believers who were Jews, trying to put on Gentile believers who didn't grow up Jewish to begin with, never attended synagogue, knew very little to nothing about the old covenant, but they knew about Jesus. They knew who he was. They knew what he accomplished. They knew what he desired. And they loved him and wanted to live for him. And so Paul's going to them and going, what are we going to do? We're all Jews. What do you say we should do about Gentile believers? And so it says, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. Know this. here, The first part of this is, for it seemed good to who? It didn't seem good to Paul necessarily. It probably did. But the scripture wasn't referring to what was good because Paul was saying it or anybody else was saying it. It said, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. You already got God's seal of approval right then and there. (laughs) What's going to take place after this. God put his seal of approval on that word. And that was important to them. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, to lay upon you, that's the Gentiles, no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood. In other words, you don't drink blood. That doesn't mean you can't have your steak rare. It's saying because there was rituals in various places where you just drank blood from things strangled and from sexual immorality. Well, that comes right down the line from the Old Covenant all the way through the New Covenant, sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Now, these things were the only regulations that Jewish believers, the original apostles and they ought to know, they were with Jesus for three and a half years, relayed to the Gentiles in a letter they had gave to Paul to read to the Gentiles wherever they went, wherever Paul went. Lay nothing more upon them. There was another council which there was like a little, they told Paul, and take offerings for the poor. And Paul says, we're more than willing to do that. We want to meet the needs of the poor. So, but there was no regulation. There was no law. They have to keep the feast. They had to get circumcised. You know, that's that's another whole gambit we could get into, but I'm not going to tonight. But the idea here is the that law, that stringent law that says you had to do it or you're not pleasing God once whatsoever. The difference between the law and the new covenant is, is, is pretty simplistic. The old covenant says you have to do these things. In the new covenant, I get to do things for God. I get to. I want to because I'm his kid and I choose to do what I need and what I want. God tells me to do. So there's no regulations laid out upon them in that letter, no feasts, no Sabbath instructions, no law other than moral law. God prophesied through Jeremiah, he says, There's coming a day where I will write my laws on their hearts not on stone tablets. Stone tablets means i got to read all this regulation stuff and try to figure it all out. In my heart, the Holy Spirit speaks to me and tells me and directs me where I'm going and what I should do and what I shouldn't do. It's a direct revelation from God. And I know for a fact I blow it from time to time. I don't listen. But when I do, I know I have an advocate before the Father that's willing to forgive me of my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Hebrews, in Hebrews 8:13, I find this is one of the most interesting passages because, uh, well, I, I love Romans. I'm teaching Romans in a nursing home now. And Romans, uh, that, that first half of Romans if when you read it you have to understand Paul is talking to mostly Jewish believers there and he is comparing law and grace all the way through he's comparing the old covenant the old covenant told me I shouldn't see, steal and Paul's going so what do I do what do I want to do I'm going to steal I'm thinking about that the law when it's written down going oh that's written down on there That sounds pretty good, actually. (laughs) But Paul said that the law is our schoolmaster. But in Hebrews, Hebrews is really good because Hebrews really gets into the difference between the covenant of Christ and the new covenant. That there is a vast difference. And I'm only going to read one scripture from it. But to me, it's the most powerful one. It says, When God speaks, And that says Hebrews 8.13, when God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one, that's the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant, obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. The new covenant makes the old obsolete. Obsolete. It's like you get a computer, you get Windows, Windows 7 or Windows XP, and then you discover a couple years down the road, Windows isn't going to help you at all with Windows XP and Windows 7. They're done. We got Windows 10, and if you don't get Windows 10, your computer suddenly becomes obsolete. That, that particular window, unless you, have an, unless you have an apple. And even then, <laughs> so the old covenant has become obsolete. The new covenant is now where we rest and we live in. And uh, I'm going to let that go with that pretty much. The pastor and I talked about this and we just felt there may be some confusion to some people in the church that, uh, concerning why do we worship on a Sunday? Why don't we worship on the seventh day? And I hope this explains you get a little bit of an idea. I'm going to give you a, a total handout on what I just talked about. And you can take it home, study it, read it for yourself so that you have an understanding. I think many of you out here already have an understanding of what that means but it's important that we do have that you know the old covenant is served its purpose there isn't anything wrong with saying that the old covenant was the old covenant wasn't all bad but the purpose part of the purpose of the old covenant as paul explains is to show that you and i have no ability to keep that law as long as we're in this human flesh we Possibly cannot keep it. Only Jesus kept the law. Kept the law to the biblical covenant that God set up. Now, the Jews tried to say he didn't when he healed somebody on the Sabbath or when he and his disciples went through a field and picked some corn and ate it. But Jesus did a real quick correcting on that in pointing out the true meaning of the Sabbath. He was always trying in a loving way to tell the Pharisees how bad they missed it. You know, we sometimes have the tendency to think that Jesus hated these people sometimes. He hated the Pharisees. Oh, he had some names for them, Generation of Vipers. lot of others, that was one of the nicer ones. But in actuality, he was trying to correct them as a parent corrects a child. And he does that with us today. He wants us to have a better way than the old covenant. There is a better way. Paul told the Galatians, he says, the Galatians were like that. The Galatians were headed back into the law. They were saved by grace. And Paul goes, You received your salvation by grace and grace alone, yet you desire to go come back into works. You desire to go back into the law. The law keeps you captive. But Jesus came to set us free. Not free to do whatever we will. Grace, that's the other thing. Grace does not give us liberty to go out and sin. But grace allows God to come in. When you begin to have this thought process, I want to go out and do such and such, or I'm going to do such and such, and the Holy Spirit's there going, "Uh, wait a minute. Or when you go ahead in your flesh, and go, ah, the heck with it. I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. But then the Holy Spirit is there to bring conviction. And you don't have to go out and get an animal and take it to some priest and have him slaughter it and put it on an altar. All you have to do is ask God directly because the veil has been lifted. The veil has been torn. There is no separation. You are forgiven. It's not a license to sin, don't get me wrong, because when you say I repent, repent means to go the other way. Some people think, I'm sorry, God, I repent. I'll go this way. Oh, but wait a minute. Squirrel. (laughs) Like The old story with the dog. But God desires that from each one of us. This was a rather short lesson tonight. I'm, I'm sorry, but uh, it's something God laid on my heart, and I talked to the pastor about what happened, and he said, "Yes, this needs to be taught. We need to have an understanding. The old is obsolete. Jesus made a new, brand spanking new." covenant written in his blood we belong to him now directly we don't need ritual and I got news Jesus when the woman the Samaritan woman the Samaritan woman questioned about worship you Jews worship in Jerusalem we worship on this mountain Jesus answered was there's coming a day when all that worship either way in Jerusalem or on the mountain because God desires to be worshipped in spirit. He is a spirit and he desires to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Fact is if you want to get technical seven days a week 365 366 on leap year is a Sabbath day to us because we have direct access to God now. It doesn't have to be on a Saturday. It doesn't have to be on a Sunday or a Wednesday. God says you're given a time of rest and a time when you worship Him, and it's that's every day that we are to worship Him. We come before Him and we do lovingly embrace Him and His grace and His forgiveness, and we need that. We need that desperately. Heavenly Father, help us to come to an understanding of what the new covenant is all about. We're grateful that you did start with the old covenant. We cannot deny that the old covenant, just as Paul said, had its place. It had its time. It was God showing us what righteousness looks like to him. But we thank you so much that you came down in your son Jesus. God shed his own blood for us. that we have free and total access to the father to you father every day every moment every moment is holy to us every moment should be holy to us every moment should be an experience that we desire to have with you